everyone, and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today, Kate is telling me a story. Yay! <laughs> I am going to tell you about a book called Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary by Sasha Geffen. I know so little officially about music that I just can't wait for you to tell me. I mean, I listen to music, obviously, but ask me a question about it. I know nothing. I know. Like, unofficially, I know a lot of gossip, but officially, (laughs) I don't know a ton. I just made a joke to you uh, last week that, like, when I don't know what a genre of music is, which is always, I just say, like, oh, is this nouveau riche? As if that is something. And then people think I know that's a music genre. (laughs) And I do not, in fact, know anything. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we used to do that about art and be like, oh, yes. someone this would ask Nouveau a question Riche? and be like, <laughs> someone would ask a question about a painting and we would be, not know the answer. Mm-hmm. And so to avoid having to answer the question, we'd just be like, if you have to ask, you don't get it. <laughs> Why is this painting just tin cans on a beach? And you're like, hmm. It's what the you're artist just, was. You're not deep enough to understand this, so I'm not going to take the time to explain it to you. <laughs> and that, friends, is why the museum museum industry is just trash. Dead. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and dying. <laughs> all of them are lying about knowing what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we did that jokingly. Some people do that for real. <laughs> all of them are doing it for real. Even the artists don't know what they're doing. Oh, if you've ever had to read an art artist statement, I'm so sorry. Oh. They're really, really atrocious. They just, like, use a thesaurus to replace every word with something mm-hmm. that sounds better, and it ends up being a word salad. My art friend, Allie, uh, told me this joke, like, years ago that I think about all the time. It's not even a joke. It's just, like, a statement that's so funny. She said she wants to get a tote bag with the phrase, the way in which on it, because... <laughs> <laughs> that's all like academic written people. in academia <laughs> the way of it i love that um, if she starts making those toe bags I'll i want one, one yeah. immediately so now i can't read academic things anymore because it's all ruined for me every other word is just the way you in start which. laughing yeah <laughs> anyway get better at writing people yeah but now we're talking about music two people from outside of academia <laughs> Yes. Uh, do you want to hear a summary of this ah, book? Yes. Tell me. Tell me. Okay. So I do sort of feel like this is a redo of Ooh. the episode that the we country did on one. country music and queerness, okay. but it was a better book. That book so was bad. It was quite bad. <laughs> Speaking of bad academic writing. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So let's hope that this uh, conversation is better okay. from that. I love it. Glitter Up the Dark is a historical examination of musicians and performers that have transcended and warped traditional gender norms. Geffen lays out evidence throughout the book that music is inherently queer. In 21st century terms, queer describes a spectrum of non-normative sexual or gender identities and politics. Which I'm probably going to use that word a lot, so just figured I would define it. (laughs) 
They argue that music is an intrinsic, subliminal expression and sensual exchange, making it well-suited to be a safe house for manifestations of non-normative gender and sexuality. So in other words, music provides the perfect playground for warping gender roles into fluid ambiguity and androgyny. From early blues artists to the Beatles, David Bowie, Prince, and Janelle Monet, Geffen explores the various ways performers across genres have used their clothes, makeup, and technology to dismantle strict gender performances and queer the gender norms of vocal performance. Mm. <sighs> okay, only one more paragraph. <laughs> okay, I gotta clear this. my throat. It's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta leave all of that in. Leave it in. We sound like we've been smoking a pack <laughs> a day for like two years. Oh god, I had COVID. Yeah, I didn't. Six so weeks what's ago. my excuse? <laughs> We're just gross. <laughs> um, okay, uh, this book is organized chronologically by music genre and touches on glam rock, punk, disco, industrial, techno, and hip hop, playing paying homage to the musical history that led to our societal understanding of gender today. Awesome. So that is my summary. That sounds so cool. I can't wait yeah. to hear you tell me more about it. Yay. So uh, I have a question Ooh. for you to get us started, which is always fun. Uh, actually, I have two questions, and you can answer whichever one you want. So either what's the best concert that you've ever attended, mm. or this one is a little bit more on brand, but maybe less fun. When someone mentions queerness in music, who is the first performer that comes to mind? Oh, um, <clears throat> well, I, this is so embarrassing. I can't even say this, but like Katy Perry is the first person I thought of because oh, she had that song. Um, I kissed a girl and I liked it, Oh, yeah. which is just like, dude, that's not even Summer a good Bob. example, but it just, <laughs> that song slaps. Yeah. It, like <laughs> it's because I was pretty young and still very religious when that song came out. And so it was a really yeah. like, whoa, like titillating thing. Yeah. Um, concert wise oh go ahead go ahead cherry chaps yes it was so iconic <laughs> i just feel like Katy perry is not i don't know like i guess i don't know that much about her but i wouldn't think of her as like a good advocate or like a champion of that community so i feel bad that she's who yeah. i thought of you know like i apologize <laughs> i don't know if she's ever come out as anything other than straight right so i honestly i don't know and also Maybe she's bi. she was with orlando bloom for a long time maybe they're still together they had a kid together i think and he was my ultimate crush in like elementary middle school so the fact mm. that she ended up with him how dare sure. how dare <laughs> i had a chance with him until she came along <laughs> obviously i was going to marry orlando bloom it was going okay? to happen <laughs> ah. she got in the way and i hate her fuck Katy Perry. <laughs> this is an anti-gay Perry podcast now <laughs> yeah what's the opposite of standing someone uh, do we just call that hating them or sabotaging them um anyway <laughs> so that's my answer about a queer song great concert Perfect. i i honestly do not go to that many concerts i wish mm -hmm. i went to more every time i go to one i love it but mm -hmm. it's just not something that I think is super easy to do by yourself. And I don't have a ton of friends mm -hmm. who are, like, concert people. Yeah. So it's, like, yeah, not something I do often. There is, like, a subculture of, like, music festival goers mm -hmm. and concert goers that I feel like all they do is that. 
And it can feel a little bit intimidating to like ask someone like that to go with you too, because they're like, oh, you don't know that yeah. in 1972 that this song was written about blah 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 and like no I I don't know any of that yeah (laughs) I feel like I feel weird that you're being weird about it (laughs) I just feel like my taste is very considered lowbrow like you know we've talked about like in country music Mm -hmm. so in general I don't try to get too close to the music scene because I feel like those people are such like hardcore judgmental people about your taste yeah and I don't want to admit that I like deep house music or whatever, you know, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't want to admit that my top playlist on Spotify yeah. is lo-fi beats. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 2010. But when I was, um, I think, like, 11, maybe, I went to an Avril Lavigne concert. That was the first concert I ever went to. <gasps> Love. With my dad. Cute. And it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that was so much fun. That was kind of her height, so yeah. I can imagine the crowd was also pretty fun to be around. What was the first concert you ever went to? The first concert I went to was with my brother and my older brother and a few of his friends and one of my friends. And it was a country music concert and I went to see Jason Aldean and Luke oh Bryan, God. who was actually the opener for Jason Aldean. So that tells you how long ago this was, that he was not as big as Jason Aldean at the time. But back then, those, like, Jason Aldean, like, that must have been a great time to see him. Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah. And that was also the day that I realized that if you're singing to a song and you're recording something, that it only picks up your voice. And you sound bad. (laughs) And you sound terrible. Oh, that's so Speaking from personal experience. So yeah, I took a bunch of like videos and then I was like showing them to my mom later and it was just like me singing and I was like, wow, never, note to self, <laughs> they never do that Instagram again. Instagram wasn't a thing so you couldn't immediately Jeez, put that I'm on a story. so embarrassing. Oh, yeah. No to kidding. find out the next morning that it's just you like crooning off key. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> me breaking glass with my terrible voice. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, Not ideal, but uh, that is a good life lesson to learn. Yeah. Uh, country concert that's so fun I love that that was your first country or that was your first concert fabulous yeah it was a fun concert I love it nice then Indianapolis I think how fun so we had we drove like an hour and a half to go see Mm -hmm. them which I guess is just what you do yeah when you're in the middle of nowhere but (laughs) yeah yeah um cool nice well do you want to move on to main issues yeah and now remind me is this book more about pop music or at all kind yes okay, okay. <laughs> so basically i would say it it technically is about like pop music but i it touches on so many genres okay. it's kind of like the most mainstream of each of the genres okay that will touch that i just mentioned okay got it does that make sense yeah, for sure it probably doesn't it might make sense more. Is the genre nouveau riche? <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep asking. <laughs> I would love it if you just make up a different word every time. I swear to God, that is probably a playlist on Spotify that's just like... Nouveau riche. Yeah. There's, their genre playlists are There's so... There's so many playlists on yeah. Spotify. It, it could be anything. Yeah, it's... Like, Sad Girl is a playlist on Spotify, and it's like, hey, it's rude that you think that applies to me, but clearly it does. 
And obviously I will listen yeah. to it infinitely. Okay. Phoebe Bridgers over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How many times do I have to listen to acoustic versions of Shallow until I'm not sad anymore? <laughs> Will someone just tell me the answer? Because I've been asking this question for years. And we're getting pretty high into play numbers. So. <laughs> My Spotify rap is getting really embarrassing, it's just, guys. It's, it's just, just three songs. Lady Gaga and what's his name? Not Anderson uh, Cooper. Um, Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Cooper. <laughs> Can you imagine if it was Anderson <laughs> Cooper? That would be incredible. I, I would wish. pay so much money to watch Anderson Cooper and Shall Lady Gaga sing that song. So let's get into the main issues of this book and key takeaways. So I think, as I mentioned on the top of this, there's a million examples of queer artists and performers that Geffen brings into this book to explain the connection between queerness and music. So I decided the best way for us to talk about this was not by genre, but rather by the tools that they were using to do this. So the three categories that I organized this conversation into are fashion, technology, and vocal performance. So my view is which one do you want to start with? Technology, fashion, vocal performance yes. is what you said. Um, ooh, let's start with fashion. <gasps> Yay. I was hoping you would say fashion. <laughs> I don't know why. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, okay, so one of the first popular bands, you're never going to guess, mm-hmm. but I'm going to invoke here, uh, to showcase men with longer hair was dun, 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 the Beatles. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was thinking that. I'm, okay, I've done it. I've, I understand music. <laughs> I've done it. I know all of music history. <laughs> so prior to this, there weren't a lot of mainstream male artists who wore their hair longer than their collars, which... I think is hilarious because that's something we don't think twice about today. Mm -mm. And many Mm -mm. men who present as masculine, uh, traditionally masculine, have Mm -hmm. men like man buns and long hair, long hair, all kinds of different hairstyles. Also, it's just so it speaks so much about our society that we care about things that are so stupid. Yeah, guys, shut up. Let people wear their hair however they feel like wearing their hair. It doesn't matter to you. <laughs> Leave them alone. Mm-hmm. I, the Beatles were also known for their rambunctious demeanors, which I don't know if you've ever watched any clips of them as youths, but <laughs> they are like very cute. Like they're very like okay. rambunctious and like mm-hmm. kind of like uh like tricksters and pranksters a little bit and they sometimes say things just to like get under people's skin which is a very like teenage boy thing to do Mm -hmm. uh and they kind of embodied rebelliousness and boyishness Mm -hmm. so geffen describes this as the fact that like their hair didn't express a girliness exactly but as this author puts it the beatles didn't look like women they looked as though they lacked the discipline to look like men, which landed them in uncharted Ooh. territory between established gender forms. That's such a gender norm. You think I just mistyped and that? <laughs> gender forms. <laughs> gender forms, gender norms. Okay, so Whatever. it's fluid. Form, That's the point. You get what I'm saying. Anyway, but I thought that was a really interesting quote. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think of that? It reminds me. 
not because they were doing this intentionally. I think many things that become intentional habits in society start as unintentional habits among a few elite people mm-hmm. who are considered cool. But it reminds me of that thing that I think Gen Zs have taken and run with, which is this performative non-performance. Mm. So, like, all of their tweets or, like, Instagram captions or whatever, it's all lowercase. Oh. And mm-hmm. it's, like, blurry shots or just, like, a random picture or whatever. So it seems like it, it lacks this formality, but it's actually very orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like those things start because someone genuinely is kind of like that and chaotic and cool. And like the Beatles, they were just like wearing their hair like that. Mm-hmm. But then other people start to imitate it. And instead of being like natural subconscious, it becomes very conscious behavior. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about those lowercase tweets because you have to actively choose to go into lowercase. Right, right. In order for it not to capitalize the first letter of a sentence. Yeah, it's not automatic. So. Yeah. yeah. So I also thought a lot um, in terms of the Beatles about how much our gender has to be seen as a performance because mm-hmm. of how much it's changed in the ways that we think about fashion or hairstyles or whatever, even in the last 70 years. Like mm-hmm. it... <laughs> It has to be a social construct because we're changing it all the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. like they, uh, this author mentions later in the book that uh, Prince, who uh, is, uh, we'll talk about a little bit more later, um, was opening for the Rolling Stones in the 70s. And by the time that Prince came on the scene, uh, Prince was doing a lot more uh, pushing the envelope in terms of gender performance. Like he would wear heels, mm-hmm. he um, mm-hmm. would wear like just a bikini bottom and like a trench coat on stage, like just like really awesome stuff. Yeah. But when he opened for the Stones, people were like yelling like gay slurs at him and were not on board. But Geffen mentions this because they were like, "Listen, <laughs> you used to say this about." people who had really long hair the stones have Mm. long hair but by this point Mm -hmm. having long hair had already been folded into the acceptable masculinity that existed Mm -hmm. and so by this point it was like well the marker has moved and so that's why you're no longer upset at the stones you're upset at prince because prince is now pushing the line even further than where it was yeah that you know what that makes me think about is how like this, this i notice this in fashion especially where it's like you know, I'm imitating other people who are creating fashion, mm-hmm. but how are those people creating it? Like, <laughs> people like the Rolling Stones or, like, yeah. the Beatles or whatever, like, where did they get those ideas or, like, what sparked their inspiration and, like, made them adopt this kind of very specific style that we, like, associate with both of them? What made them attracted to that? And because I'm, I feel like very... um tabula rasa about that i'm like you tell me what to do i'll do yeah. it yeah <laughs> like, i am I having know. No, no i totally relate to ideas. that <laughs> i totally relate to that of like the concept of being so creative that you could actually make something entirely new is yeah. so astounding to me and actually feels worthy of the title genius you know mm-hmm. when you're just like wow you... especially now because yeah. the more we live the lo- the harder it is yeah and like so much has been done already and yeah. like finding a way to be newer, unique or interesting about it is mm-hmm. like pretty hard, I think. 
Yeah. It's like if someone told you to come up with a new kind of animal, you would just like ma- mix together animals. <laughs> yeah, I should put like, like octopus legs on a horse and be like, this is it. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> but that's how like, I feel about fashion. Sorry, Anytime someone's animal, like. <laughs> what environment was this animal built for? <laughs> it's like a lab. Shut up. <laughs> Racing in the ocean. Okay. <laughs> quarter octopuses are very fast over short distance it's also so funny to me that i chose those two things because uh, an animal called a seahorse already exists it doesn't look anything like that again it's impossible to be created we've made our point (laughs) i'm just validating us okay uh all right well we don't have to talk about the beatles too much because they've been talked about plenty and i will not do yeah i will not add anything to the conversation i'd rather talk about yoko ono uh but one of the other people that Kevin mentions in terms of fashion is patty smith do you know anything about patty smith it's totally fine to say no because i did not um i accidentally read her memoir (laughs) (laughs) like two years ago (laughs) and that's the only reason that i know anything about her so she is a founder and icon of the punk movement and she actually was the longtime platonic partner of uh, robert maplethorpe who was a really famous photographer and i knew him because he was a famous artist and i knew some of that from art history And uh, my sister-in-law recommended that I read her memoir because it was really interesting. And so I started reading it, even though I knew nothing about her life or her Mm -hmm. music stylings or any of her own merits, uh, Mm -hmm. which was really interesting. But uh, yeah, so Patti Smith is a good example of gender bending, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, She was known for dressing androgynously by wearing men's shirts, no bras, woo, and rocking an infamous jet black shag that matched that of Keith Richards of Rolling Stones fame, uh, which I love. Okay. So there's a quote that I pulled about Patti Smith that I thought was pretty interesting. Okay. So this is more about female sexuality and gender performance. Uh, so Geffen writes, before she had written or recorded a single song, Patti Smith worked hard to piece together an image that felt like home. She found the spectrum of 1960s feminine expression lacking. This is a quote from Patti Smith. She says, The boys had Bond and Brando. They beat off to Bardo. Uh, <laughs> the girls had a pale range of Doris Day to Sandra D. She wrote in a 1993 essay. All through childhood, I resisted the role of, of a confused skirt tagging the hero. Instead, I was searching for someone crossing the gender boundaries, someone both to be and be with. I never wanted to be Wendy. I was more like Peter Pan. This was confusing mm-hmm. stuff. That's the end of her. I love that. So yeah, what do you think about that uh, perspective? I, as much as I am upset about the time I live in, <laughs> I am <laughs> very thankful that I have this endless spectrum of identities to look at and absorb. And of course, there are more now than there were when I was younger. But even then, in the 90s, there was way more women doing cool things. And let me, that sounds like I'm shitting on women. Women were always doing cool things. Mm -hmm. But we didn't get to see it as much as we have now in more recent times. Yeah, they weren't elevated. Yeah, I'm glad that I had more examples of, of women breaking norms and 
binaries, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't about sexuality, just about identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I am not huge into punk music, so I, mm-hmm. you know, previously didn't know that much about Patti Smith, but uh, in looking at, like, her kind of famous look now, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely androgynous, but uh, it's not something that would be anywhere near, like, surprising or maybe even that notable now. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I just find it so interesting, like, how uh, notable it was at the time. Yeah. That, like, because yeah. there were so few people doing it, it was a really big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like, I think when we look back, we think about those people with admiration, but we can often overlook how much adversity they must have faced simply by being different, Mm -hmm. which obviously continues to shape that identity even more. Yeah. Um, But it's hard to be treated like you're doing something bad simply by transgressing, transgressing Mm -hmm. the system in whatever way. In in such benign ways too, like having a different kind of haircut or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Like, or like not wearing a bra. It's like what does it matter yeah. to anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. Like who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. No, I definitely agree with that. Uh the last person in this fashion category that I wanted to talk about, and I find this to be a really interesting person because I don't know that they're necessarily remembered in this way. Uh okay. is Kurt Cobain. So the relationship between Courtney Love, the lead singer of Holes, and Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana, who infamously struggled uh, with a heroin addiction and committed suicide at 27. Oh, 27 is so young. uh, Occupies Mm -hmm. a whole chapter of this book. So I want to read a section that I found especially interesting in terms of fashion. Yeah. I... As you know, famously, I was I used to be a huge true crime fan, mm-hmm. and I went through a phase where I was really interested in the Kurt Cobain situation, so I actually do know quite a bit about all of that, and I found it obviously very sad, but very fascinating, and yeah, yeah it's... 27 is so young. Yeah. But he'd already, like, done so much, and as had Courtney and the people around him, mm-hmm. so... Anyway, tell me what you're going to tell me. I can't wait. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, given the gigantic cultural impact of a lot of these mm-hmm. artists, it's sometimes hard to reconcile how short of a time they were on this earth. Like, Jimi Hendrix yeah. is another good example. I think he was, like, 25 oh, when... when he died. I don't Whoa. know. Very young. Uh, I think Janis Joplin, also 25. Um, so, uh, mm. just, like, a very... Um, good examples to kind of put it in perspective that like they had such a big impact. You kind of think of them as like Paul McCartney, even though he's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how old he is now, like 85 or something. He's yeah, immortal yeah. question mark. I don't know. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, you kind of think of them in the same vein and then you're like, Oh my God, mm-hmm. you only put out like two or three albums because you died at 27, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah. So very, um, kind of shocking, to put that in perspective mm-hmm. as someone who's not like a 17 year old to which 27 sounds old. Yeah. 27 <laughs> you know? sounded old. Exactly. Well, you're basically 30 and dead. So <laughs> be dead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let me read this section about Kurt Cobain. So 
Uh, Geffen writes, Cobain wove cross-dressing into his arch-laconic public persona. In a 1991 interview on the MTV metal show Headbangers Ball, LOL, uh, the front man <laughs> wore a long custard yellow chiffon dress and a matching jacket with a comically high collar. Dark round sunglasses obscured his eyes. It's Headbangers Ball, so I thought I'd wear a gown, he said quietly. Nodding to his bandmate, cursed, uh, wait, hold on, I don't know how to say this. Cursed. <laughs> I don't know how to say this person's name. <laughs> Uh, nodding to his bandmate, Chris Novoselect, Novoselect, I don't know, I'm so sorry, um, who showed up to the interview in a black button-down and olive khakis. Cobain added, he didn't wear his tux, he didn't give me a corsage either. At least I asked you out, <laughs> he quoted back. Uh, the dress and the gently homoerotic banners, banter set Nirvana apart from the usual headbanger ball fare. Their music was heavy enough to attract metalheads, but Cobain made sure to poke fun at his fans' machismo by bringing his femininity into a t- onto a TV show specifically marketed towards straight dudes. The dress was a playful provocation, aimed straight at the sore spots of the type of boys who used to throw homophobic slurs in his face. Though just about every grunge frontman wore his hair long in keeping with the subculture's image of unkept, oily masculinity, Cobain took the t- look one step further, dyeing his bleached locks pink with Kool-Aid. He wore dresses not just in the safe enclosures of video shoots and television interviews, but to Nirvana's early concerts on college campuses before they broke big. The dresses signaled an open acceptance of femininity and queerness. Cobain was often frustrated with the brittle masculinity upheld by many of his fans, and his clothing was one way to soften Nirvana's image making it clear that he wasn't just trying to make music for loud, obnoxious boys. Mm. And Geffen goes on to talk a little bit about how, in an interview, uh, Courtney Love kind of playfully makes fun of Kurt Cobain for wearing <laughs> what she calls tacky underwear, which are, um, like, bat- like poorly colored like bikini bottoms instead of boxers and says that she finally got him to wear a set of boxers that weren't tacky and <laughs> things like that. So um, awesome. I think that uh, he talks and the way that they both talk about their relationship is very much more in a pansexual way of like, mm-hmm. I would be with this person no matter what their exterior body or gender presentation or uh, sexuality or whatever would be. Um, yeah. And so I found that to be really interesting because, you know, years later, as we look at his legacy, I'm not so sure how much of that is remembered in our kind Mm -hmm. of like cultural uh, idea of Nirvana. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think that any of the like podcasts I've listened to about his life and death really explored that in any meaningful way because yeah i don't remember knowing those details about him that he would wear dresses and things like that Mm -hmm. that's so interesting yeah i thought so too uh geffen is also sure to point out that cross-dressing wasn't just a big part of his onstage persona uh cobain who publicly talked about exploring bisexuality and being attracted to people uh not just genders uh often cross-dressed in his day-to-day life too which I thought was just really interesting. Yeah, that is. Wow, I'm. I mean, I guess it was like the nine. He died in ninety one, ninety two. Mm, so yeah, it was like the eighties and nineties. 
which I guess those things were becoming a little bit more acceptable, but still like a tough, tough environment to be exploring, exploring anything in. Yeah, I think especially in the genre that you're talking about, like grunge was a very, I think, male dominated uh, genre and it feels Mm -hmm. more so than in other places like pop music where you did have people that came before him like Freddie Mercury or uh, Prince or whoever that did Mm -hmm. break a lot of those barriers Um, and then in grunge Mm -hmm. music I think partially because it was a little bit of like a new thing uh, mm-hmm. to have him doing that, I would imagine, was probably especially kind of jarring for the audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about queerness and technology. Okay. So the first person we're going to talk about is Donna Summer. Do you know who Donna Summer is? I know the name for sure but i couldn't tell you what she did or sang or same. thought <laughs> <laughs> same uh so disco began as a mm. style of djing that emerged in new york and played off of the energy of their primarily gay crowds uh, its history is wrapped up in the history of gay dance clubs and became as geffen puts it a refuge from capitalists or capitalism's rigid structures by creating music that could go on infinitely letting their audiences lose track of time and disappear into their environments. So I think that that is really fascinating to me and also gave me the epiphany that when you're listening to music of the 70s, a lot of the reasons that they just trail off into black and just sort of like fade away is because the expectation was that they were being played by DJs who would not let them play to the end and would change to something else depending on the crowd's vibe. So cool. Yeah. Ah, history. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So in the 1970s, disco emerged from an underground circuit and caused record companies to take notice and begin seeking to record these groups. Uh, There's a quote that refers to Donna Summer, a famous disco DJ, as a cyborg princess for her blending of music and technology, which, like, what a, like, (laughs) yeah, just, legacy. so cool, kick-ass title, amazing. That's the next thing I'm going to use as, like, a genre of music when I don't know what to (laughs) say. Oh, is this cyborg princess? Oh, is this, like, cyborg princess? (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah, I've heard heard about this kind of thing before. I, like, already know everything about everything. (laughs) Excuse me, could I have an Aperol Spritz? (laughs) (laughs) Call back. (laughs) Please continue. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So this is a quote from Gavin. Uh, that describes a little bit more of this like blending of technology and music. So Geffen writes, DJs were musicians that did not play instruments, negotiating with a playback machine to create live music from pre-recorded audio. From the start, disco DJs were cyborgs by design, technologically aided beings who unstitched time and grew new bodies in the limbo. Mm, I love said negotiating with, because that's like, yeah. Very cool quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one of the things that's really interesting to me is this idea that you could escape capitalism by not adhering to time, by like heading into yeah. a club and just getting lost in there for however mm-hmm. long. And like, what an incredible 
owed to the legacy and like importance of disco that like you're creating a space that felt safe from all of these structures of capitalism that in so many ways feel inescapable yeah i also think it's a really interesting testament to the fact that you can build off of another's art without stealing it or Mm, copying it I think something we see a lot now in the like Instagram internet age is that content is not just replicated, but like directly copied. But this is such a good example that like, you don't have to create something from like nothing yeah. in order to build something else and create new art with it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's a way to um, appreciate something and build on it without just claiming it entirely as your own yeah yeah to like give credit where credit is due Mm -hmm. yes and like actually acknowledge influences (laughs) yeah i think like yeah i don't know sometimes people don't do which is not great no but i and i think it's because they want to pretend or have people believe that the genius is entirely their own yeah Sure. But we don't live in a vacuum, so of course it's not entirely your own. Yeah. Um, there are things that we have, like, read and consumed that have influenced us in ways that we we can't acknowledge because we don't even recognize it in ourselves. Yeah. Like but it's a subliminal that, thing. Yeah. So it's, like, everything we create is based off of the influences and inspirations of the things we've consumed. So we don't have to be ashamed of that. That's true for literally everyone. Yeah. It's also like a human experience to be a social being and to pick things up from other people. And it Mm -hmm. seems kind of bizarre to just (laughs) deny that you do that. We all do that. That's like part of what makes us human and like social. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I just feel like in my work and there is a difference between taking something and repackaging it and pretending that it's yours and honoring something that has influenced you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, do the latter, people. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about hip-hop. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I know nothing about This is the one I know the least about. The least. Okay. <laughs> and there's, I feel like there's, this is the place where there's the most opportunity for me to embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I know the least about it. Uh, the anyway. perfect storm. <laughs> uh, so in 1973, a back-to-school party hosted by two Bronx teens, Herc and Cindy, birthed hip-hop as we know it. Herc began using turntables to create new music from the music he had, adding an element that disco didn't. His own voice on a microphone calling out over the music. So this began uh, with him just, like, yelling at his friends and saying little lines over the music and adding to it, uh, and then kept building from there. And now we know everyone who, like, samples music and then raps over it and things like that. So uh, early hip-hop echoed cyborg imagery as a critique of capitalism and being stuck in a system that only valued Black people for their labor. Later in the 80s, Public Enemy's rapper and hype man Flick Flav started wearing oversized clocks as necklaces as representation that time did not have to be an external force bonding the body of the individual. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Did not have to be an external force uh, 
binding the body of an individual. As Geffen writes, clocking in and out has no meaning when the individual, untethered from traditional labor, owned the clock himself. Which I thought was really cool, and as someone who ignorantly only knew Flavor Flav from his show Flavor of Love in the 2000s, <laughs> incredibly embarrassing, uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really profound and interesting thing um, that I really love, like uh, being able yeah. to kind of use it as a representation of um, how important it is uh, to push back against the idea that you're only good for your labor. Yeah. I think it also really highlights to me how much the, I guess, mainstream media, I did uh, scare quotes around that, um, (laughs) was working to make rappers and hip hoppers in like the nineties and two thousands when I was young, just seem like buffoons basically like, very um culturally holy shit. Culturally. You know, culturally. <laughs> the culture. You know. Irrelevant. <laughs> um, or just uh unintelligent, mm-hmm. not not capable of philosophical thought, etc. Yeah. And clearly that's not the case. And the relevance to our culture is exponential. Yeah. But yeah. it's really nice to hear these different perspectives where their music wasn't, you know, it was just as, like, highbrow as many other forms of art. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I don't think that people would talk about Public Enemy, oh, I shouldn't say people. I don't know that uh, white people at the time, or mm-hmm. maybe a lot of peop- white people now, would talk about Public Enemy in the same way as that you would talk about the influence of, like, Mozart or something or the influence of whoever but like that doesn't mean that it's not philosophically intentional and considered Mm -hmm. and coming from a place of a really important and valid critique um yeah so yeah reading this book was really fascinating from the standpoint of it's uh not validation but um Mm -hmm. just it's highlighting all of these other aspects of these artists that maybe you're right were excluded because of racism or sexism Mm -hmm. or uh like prejudice classism yeah 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 for sure yeah okay that's super interesting yeah so the final one in the technology category that i highlighted is share (laughs) so finally there's our beloved share Uh, During the age of the internet, people began to see reality as something that was fungible, thanks to Hmm. The Matrix. Oh my god, that movie fundamentally changed me. I know, that's why I had to bring up this passage. (laughs) Oh, well, you were well aware of my love of Keanu Reeves, and how, because of that movie, watched at too young of an age, I will forever be attracted to dark-haired men who like sci-fi. So, if someone could recommend a good therapist... (laughs) So if anyone has Keanu Reeves' number, pass it along. Orlando Bloom and I didn't work out, but Keanu Reeves, I will. It's in the stars, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, gender came to be seen in much the same way, something manipulatable. Manipulatable. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. 
So Believe became the first song to use autotune, not as a corrective tool, but as an aesthetic one, further pushing Cher's voice toward androgyny in terms of gender, as well as the binary of human and machine. So I thought it was something that was really interesting in terms of technology and thinking about a binary and gender binary. Uh, Mm -hmm. Geffen writes about the beginning of using computers in music and likening the binary of computer code of being the zeros and the ones Mm -hmm. to the gender Mm -hmm. binary. Uh, They write that the play of music in this way glitches the binary, which I thought was a really cool take on technology and music. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting. It feels like so many of these things that were once used as ways to queer different aspects of culture have been villainized Mm -hmm. like auto-tune i feel like people don't care as much now but for such a long time like during the kesha age and everything auto-tune was considered so like trashy like kitschy almost or something yeah yeah so it's interesting how you you don't necessarily understand that that is a reaction to queerness Mm -hmm. when you dig into it there's overwhelming evidence that like most of the time when there's like a cultural backlash about a thing like if you follow it down to its source there's an ism behind it like yeah sexism racism etc and it's like jesus christ yeah for sure calm down (laughs) no that's so true though like how easy it is for you to like hear something and like not investigate it really or dive into it Mm -hmm. critically because you don't have the time or you don't really care that much or whatever and then like to realize later that like oh this is this should have been positioned much differently than i than it was at the time and Mm -hmm. now my perspective has really changed on it you know yeah yeah so the final thing is vocal performance Mm. Uh, i did promise we were going to talk more about prince so Uh, Prince is perhaps one of the most famous examples of queerness and androgyny in music. Uh, As Geffen writes throughout his prolific career, in the way he dressed, the way he held himself, and the way he sang, Prince chased androgyny. He often wore heels to perform, and he later, spurred by a legal battle over his creative rights, changed his name to a symbol that melds the signs for female, male, and a giant question mark, (laughs) Um, and started using this, like, on his albums, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl when he performed, which may have been, Mm -hmm. oh boy... 2015 i don't know what year that would have been a long time ago uh maybe maybe it was more recent than that um covid has killed my brain (laughs) like since that happened everything is warped yeah like the time time, i'm like i have no idea that could have been 10 years ago or three months ago could have been yesterday (laughs) no one knows uh he had like a specialized guitar that was that symbol um oh i remember that yeah Yeah. and has like very much like claimed that as kind of his Mm. uh yeah, his symbol, which is very cool. Uh, yeah. Prince's voice has, uh, so this is a quote. So Prince's voice, quote, has both the crimped strain of his bandmate Lisa Coleman's delivery and the sulky grain of his guitarist Des Dickerson's. It's not a man's voice or a woman's voice, but a fusion of the qualities often associated with each. In every aspect mm. of his career, Prince delighted in that fusion. He found spiritual and artistic transcendence in letting himself be two or more things at once. 
and he followed that multiplicity into some of the most arresting pop songs of the past 50 years. Cool, Prince. Yeah. <laughs> wow, look at you go. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I also think it's awesome mm-hmm. that this person who is uh, like icon for queerness mm-hmm. uh, came from Minnesota. <laughs> that's pretty oh, cool. that is cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's the uh, one thing to be like, oh, this icon of queerness came from, like, I don't know, the Bay Area or, yeah, yeah, or, like, New York. But to have them come from the Midwest is, like, pretty cool. Yeah, it's like you expect people from coastal cities to be cool, but (laughs) (laughs) you don't necessarily expect it from the Midwest, which is, like, obviously a prejudice towards the Midwest. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's still really nice to hear of cool people coming from those places because it gives people who other people came from those places a sense of stronger identity yeah and like pride in that yeah and that like it's not a requirement that you grow up in a coastal place or whatever to be cool like you can have innovative ideas and identities mm-hmm. wherever you are yeah for sure i don't know how don't ask <laughs> okay. this isn't but a manual on how to yeah. be a cool person <laughs> i clearly don't know <laughs> If, but if anyone figures it out, please email us at yes, <laughs> readerspod at gmail.com. How do you put an outfit together? <laughs> what pants am I supposed to be wearing? What pants are Honestly, we doing right now? I don't Women's understand the pants. fashion is nuts. And they don't look good on me like I start crying <laughs> I don't like the pants and I don't know what to do about it. Throw away low-rise jeans. I will I'm never not gonna say it again. go back. And if anyone thinks... <laughs> I love if you thought we were mad about Roe v. Wade, I know, I was you haven't seen it anything. like a Roe v. Wade sign, but it's about low-rise jeans. We're, not, we're never going back. You will we not will take away my right back. to cover up my stomach with the jeans. <laughs> Uh, incredible. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> so the second person, or actually people, in the uh, vocal performance category is Salt and Peppa. Hip hop emerged as a more masculine art form, like rock, and women MCs often had to act or present more masculine to participate in these spaces, in both mm-hmm. the ways that they dressed and the ways they sounded. In 1987, Salt and Peppa broke out with Push It. Yeah. Love that song. Mm-hmm. Which was mm-hmm. one of the first singles by female rappers to become a nationwide hit. Which is pretty cool. Oh. I did not them. know that. <laughs> I didn't either. Uh, this success, Gavin writes, is in part because they were rapping the way that men did. They underscored their gruff, gravelly voices with the way that they looked um, and moved on stages. On stage. They inverted the typical setup of men rapping and women singing or whispering and often used intense voices uh, like shouting or other things in their music, which uh, I just think is like really fascinating of like, oh, we can't get respect if we're feminine. Well, that's fine. We can channel our Mm -hmm. masculinity and that's great too you know (laughs) yeah yeah definitely i mean it's annoying that 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 was the requirement that they couldn't be taken seriously without doing that but it it just speaks to i don't know the flawlessness of women that they can do both things yeah women are perfect (laughs) yeah 
No one can tell us otherwise. <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of women, this next uh, one about vocal performance is also around women. And then I do have a okay. question for you. Okay. So uh, in the 1970s to the 1980s, there was actually a movement called women's music that arose, which focused specifically oh. on highlighting the work of often queer women musicians negotiated lesbian identity through a more pastoral sound similar to what you'd find in folk music which i had no idea about this like did not know anything about this before i read this book uh this gave rise to a distinctly lesbian voice a way of singing that took on a uniquely butch edge among women folk singers it was frayed low and dark and sounded ragged and inflamed which sounds very sexual (laughs) yeah painful and sexual so (laughs) it kind of sounds like you ate glass but it also sounds sexual (laughs) yeah it sounds sexual in an s&m way (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. dangerous uh so while no one in this movement really broke out into the mainstream of like pop music geffen identifies Mm -hmm. tracy chapman who sings fast car as a legacy of this kind of singing which i thought was really fascinating Yes. I, like, I know that that is a woman who sings that, but it's still, in my mind, not. like it, Yeah, it's very it, androgynous. Yes. Like, I, I also did not know that for a long time, even though their name is Tracy. Like, yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, Dana, Tracy, like, these names can be men's names, mm-hmm. too. So I guess yeah. that's not totally unfair. But, yeah, it's, like, very hard for me to, like, believe it almost, which is, like, this shouldn't be this difficult for you. <laughs> well, like, it is one thing, like, when you're listening to something and you don't see any visual clues yeah. that, like, your brain patterns would automatically assign a gender to, uh-huh. then I do yeah. think it's, like, uh, a different experience of like gendering just a voice especially when it's like singing and Mm -hmm. the person behind the voice like is singing in a very like androgynous tone and Mm -hmm. is kind of like uh in between the vocal range of like uh traditionally male and feminine voice Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely cool Okay, so that's all of my history that I have for you. I would love to hear if you have anything that we just talked about that was, like, really surprising or interesting to you. Anything that really, like, stands out. Um, Yeah. Give me your feedback. I think the thing that was standing out to me, which is, you know, at the beginning where I said, like, I don't know anything about music or something. I said something Mm -hmm. like that. I don't know. It's been an hour and a half, so I've forgotten everything. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) forget everything i say immediately so jot that Um, down but i as you were telling me these things i realized why i feel this like inherent sense that i don't know things about music and it's because i i know who prince is i know who Cher is i know who salt and pepper are i know that Mm -hmm. but i have never sought out listening to their music Mm, i've definitely heard it on the radio seen it in movies all that Mm -hmm. stuff but it's not music that i think is like considered iconic music mm-hmm. i just like didn't grow up listening to i don't have any emotional connection to yeah and often don't like that much mm-hmm. like i don't dislike it but i'm often not like ooh, this is such a jam yeah like, i just don't <laughs> feel that way so that i think is what has given me this sense that i like either don't have good taste or like whatever mm-hmm. because i just like don't know that much about or feel drawn to this very iconic music i feel that way a little bit about like classic english literature 
Like I've never oh, read God, like yes. Pride and Prejudice, and I've never read Withering Heights, and I've never mm-hmm. read you know a lot of those sorts of books. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I feel like I, and I'm like not sure that I'm motivated to to do it. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I may maybe I just won't. Maybe that'll just be a gap in my knowledge, yeah. and that's fine. If I don't like, it, I'm not gonna force myself to read. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's the same yeah. kind of like thing where it's like, well, if you don't enjoy listening to like tracy chapman or nirvana or whatever then it's like well mm-hmm. yeah you're not gonna seek it out because you don't like it yeah. you know which is like yeah. pers- perfectly fine and valid like so yeah i get well, that but i think that there's like you know you said if i don't read the british lits like that'll just be a gap in my knowledge mm-hmm. but i think that pinpoints a, a cultural sense that we have that we should know things about those mm-hmm. things yeah because it's like important for us to have well-rounded identities and it's about white people so yeah it, it, <laughs> for the it, british lit one for yeah, sure it's like yeah. we don't have to know it's because it's about Ooh. the whites <laughs> it's about all culture it's about the whites like, with okay. bad teeth and it's like okay well but it doesn't and that's not more important <laughs> yeah but i just think that you know you and i are well-rounded people mm-hmm. even without those things and no one can engage with all media. That's impossible, no, that's especially now. An insane so request. I don't like. I notice this that I like don't know that much about classic music or whatever we want to call it. Mm-hmm. But again, me not knowing the genre, call something, whatever. Um, but I also don't care. I'm at a place in my life where I no longer yeah, feel actually embarrassed or ashamed that I don't know those things. Like. Yeah. When I could have learned stuff about this, I was being forced to listen to bad evangelical music. It's not my <laughs> fault. <laughs> I, I legitimately have, uh, I just have an interest in history and I have a, a huge interest in mm-hmm. pop culture. And so I really yes, appreciate yeah. these things from like a, a cu- pop cultural yeah, impact lens. Um, yeah, I don't sure. necessarily like, I, I probably won't go back and listen to like, a lot of these artists that we just talked about but mm-hmm. um i have occasionally been like introduced to artists um that were really impactful and then listen to them and be like oh my god i love this and yeah. like i just yeah. discovered something i really love and so i also think a lot of my like discovery and stuff like that is like ch- a chasing of that feeling of like mm-hmm. i just discovered something that has like changed something in me and I love it so much and I want to share it with everyone and I'm in love with it, you know? And I feel kind of the same way about all like pop culture consumption from like movies Mm -hmm. to books or whatever. But Mm -hmm. I do think a lot of it is, is kind of that of less like, like I have to know the history behind all of (laughs) hip hop (laughs) and more just like, are there things out there that I'm like missing out on that could be really fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, That's the first so time I listened to David Bowie, I was like, oh my god, I love it, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, this was great. Do you have pop culture parodies? Uh I do. I have a few. Um, so, a couple of books. I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. Patty Smith's memoir called Just Kids. Uh would recommend okay. that. Really interesting. Uh, and I would also recommend if you're interested in boy bands, I read a book earlier this year by Maria Sherman called Larger Than Life, A History of Boy mm-hmm. Bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS. Uh, it was just really fun. It's not nearly as comprehensive or serious or impactful as this book. Okay. <laughs> but it is like kind of fun. Uh, yeah, similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like chill vibes. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Cool. It's like eating a cupcake, you know? <laughs> it's like a Don't sugar rush. I, love <laughs> uh, I also recently watched a documentary uh, called Paris is Burning that is all about the... Uh, like balls and dance scenes of uh, queer people mm-hmm. in New York in the 1980s and focuses about a lot on like uh, trans women and uh, drag queens and mm-hmm. it was really cool. I really just appreciated like the moments they had on screen of these awesome women uh, talking about their fashion and yeah, it was just really cool. Uh, it's also only like an hour or something, so, you know, I don't know. I always throw that out there because I don't think movies should be longer than an hour and a half, and all of no. them are like eight hours long now, so <laughs> yeah. when you can watch something that's not eight hours long, it's always a win. Anyway, that's streaming on HBO Max. Uh, and finally, I would suggest listening to one of my favorite androgynous singers who uh, does identify as queer. Um, Brittany Howard from the Alabama Shakes, who I just absolutely love her voice. It's uh, so powerful and uh, commanding and incredible. And every song that I listen to by them, I love. love that song so much it's like one of those songs that i'm like and let's play it again and listen to it on repeat yeah. and another one <laughs> let's go again and one, one more time, one more time. <laughs> <laughs> when i'm like driving alone i'm just like repeat <laughs> yeah when you're with the people they're thing. like can we listen to something new <laughs> no <laughs> like, yeah, i'm having a movie moment here. this is in my movie soundtrack scarf on big sunglasses yeah, top exactly. down even though you don't have a convertible you cut the roof off we're going for it i cut the roof Chris off my honda like, civic what the fuck i'm trying to be thelma and louise i just drive off a cliff in my honda civic he's like i did not sign up to die on a cliff with you and you're like do that baby Please again. this is the worst just uber ride it. ever <laughs> Cosmo's like, I'm having fun. <laughs> okay. Anyway, my God. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Well, join us again next time for more of our bullshit. <laughs>